I'm Paul. If you don't know me, that's me, Paul. Thank you, and awesome job. Um, I will uh, just mention that Sam, who came up, she's wondering what I'm going to say now, but Sam, who came up earlier, she sent me a, a, some notes just to, uh, for me to have a view of what, you know, some advice on what I thought she should say. And it, was, it really kind of bowled me over. There is, she only touched on the surface of some of the stuff that she's been seeing. Some of the stories were just astonishing. Um, and I really kind of can't commend it enough to you. It was, it's really good. So please support that. Um, it's, you know, it's touching people's lives. God's moving. And it's absolutely fabulous. Oh, it's good. So thank you, Sam, for doing that. It's brilliant. Um, uh, right, I'm going to be... We're, we're cantering through, as you know. We're talking about... Well, I hope you know that we're talking about... Um, the people in the Bible, of, uh, of various people of significance. And today we're talking about David. Um, and um, I've um, said there that he is, he is a man of worship and a man of grace, or a man under grace. Um, we've uh, just heard one of, um, one of the Psalms of uh, David, just read, read out to us just now. He was a worshipper and he was a man that the Bible says, or God himself says, uh, was, was somebody who was after his own heart. Um, he had, I don't know if you know this, but he had a tent. Do you know that David had a tent? Yeah, some of you are nodding. Tents, I don't do tents. I'm not great on tents. My wife will tell you I don't do tents. Um, you know, maybe we'll stretch to a tent for Soul Survivor or Bible Weeks or stuff like that. But it's, it's not about the tent so much. It's about... The shared facilities can't be doing with any of that kind of stuff, honestly. Um, uh, and talking of Bible Weeks, of course, there is a conference of Bible Week which is called David's Tent, um, which may ring a bell to some of you. Some of you may even have been to it, and it's, it's about 24-7 worship. Um, and that's kind of bringing me to um, what I want to talk about around David, because David's tent was an actual tent which David constructed uh, in the Bible. Um, and it's one of these things which is uh, probably one of the most remarkable moments in uh, Old Testament scripture. But it's something that so easily we, we don't see. If you're just reading the story, you don't necessarily see the significance of what David did. But it's quite an astonishing story. So we're going to go to First Chronicles and we're going to look at um, uh, chapter 15 to start off with. Uh, so if you've got your Bible app or you want to follow it up on the top, that's uh, good. We're good to go. So, then David and the elders of Israel and the generals of the army went to the house of Obed-Edom to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant up to Jerusalem with a great celebration. So I'm going to stop here. Some of you may be familiar that David tried to bring the Ark up uh, once before. Uh, and uh, he made a bit of a mess of it. He put it on. He just he just basically got some guys to put it on a cart, and um, and take this cart along. And one of the guys who was um, accompanying the ark saw the oxen stumble, and the ark began to fall. Put his hand out to steady the ark, which you and I probably think was probably a good thing. But God didn't like it, and uh, as a result, he was uh, he was killed. Uh, God God took quite <laughs> quite a lot of vengeance out on him and the whole kind of uh, event. And it was really down to the fact that nobody was honouring God. This, this ark was the, was the, God was saying, the place where he lived. It was the most holy 
of things that you could have. Uh, and nobody was honouring it. And David took the time to go back and work out, read the Bible, work out what the instructions in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers tell him to do, and uh, he uh, then went ahead and did it. So this is the second time. And so now he's got um, the right people that the Bible says should be there, to, and they're being the ark is being carried on poles by the priests, by the Levites, in the way that's specified. So we'll move on then to uh, the next verse, which says, And because God was clearly helping the Levites as they carried the ark of the Lord's covenant, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, <clears throat> as were all the Levites who carried the ark, and also the singers and Kaniah, the choir leader. David was also wearing a priestly garment. So all Israel brought up the ark of the Lord's covenant with shouts of joy, the blowing of ram's horns and trumpets, the crashing of cymbals, and loud playing of harps and lyres. But as the ark of the Lord covenant entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window, and when she saw King David skipping around and laughing with joy, she was filled with contempt for him. And you can read elsewhere, you can read uh, in the uh, book of Samuel, it talks about how uh, David um, came to her and said, you, you know, you've seen that. That he uses this phrase and says, I'll be even more undignified than this, which is something that Matt Redman, if you know the Rat Redman song, picked up on. Um, so David had this very clear heart that this was about worshipping God and he was going to give worship to God regardless of what anyone else thought. So they brought the Ark of God and placed it inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. And when he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. There he gave every man and woman in Israel a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. David appointed the following Levites to lead people in worship for the ark of the Lord, to invoke his blessing, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, I'm going to stop there because I could tell you all the Levites, but it would take me a while, and it's a list of names and all this kind of stuff. But the, the, the reason I, I read to that point is because you can see that David is really worshipping the socks off this. Yeah, he's putting praise and worship around everything that's happening. He's following the, the rules of God. But worship, it reflects the heart of the man, that worship was the heart. And he was not going to just do a bit of worship or he was going to go over and above what was required. So here you have <clears throat> this tent that David has set up. Now, why is that remarkable? Um, you will know, well, I say you'll know, if you look back in the descriptions in Exodus and uh, in some of the, uh, in the Pentateuch, the early books of the Bible, there is a very clear layout of the tabernacle of God. So you had this tent and you had the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant was behind the big curtain. So that was your holy place, Yeah. And you could not enter the holy place unless you were an ordained priest, and it was like once in a lifetime, essentially. One person entered it a year, and they kind of took turns. And even the person that entered had a rope attached to them so that they could be pulled out should they be smitten by God. Um, and that, that was what they did every year. And then you had the holy place, which was kind of on this side of the curtain. And again, only certain ordained priests were allowed in there. Um, and then, um, but in front of that, again, outside the main central tent, you then had an area where you had the burnt offerings were given and, and various other uh, things happened, all of which were ordained within the, um, in Exodus. Uh, 
Okay? Now, for those of you who have been Christian for a while, you'll be familiar with some of that because you'll know about when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was rent in two, was torn in two, and um, we then have, through Jesus on the cross, this direct access. That's happened because of Jesus on the cross, yes? Yeah? So what we have in David's tent, though, is we have the presence of God, and it's placed in a tent. There's no curtain. It's big enough, as far as we understand it, for people to, uh, enough people to get in there so they would, all these people could praise and worship God. So it's a fairly open tent, and there is the presence of God just there. So you can walk past this tent, and you can see the Ark of the Covenant. This is Old Testament times. This is direct access to the presence of God in Old Testament times. That makes it an anomaly as far as the Old Testament is concerned. There's something that David understood about the grace of God and the presence of God that allowed him to set this up. Now, you may not realize that there were two tents. So this was David's tent, which he set up in Jerusalem. But if you then look at 2 Corinthians first, uh, chapter 1, 3 to 6, this appears in a number of places, but this is the most explicit reference to another tent. And this tent was in Gibeon. So I'll read this. It said, Then he, that's Solomon, there are um, accounts of David going to the tent, but this was Solomon. He led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon, for God's tabernacle was located there. So this is, well, it says here in brackets, this was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. So all that description I've just given you, this is, that's this one now that's in Gibeon. David had already moved the Ark of God from, from Kerith-Jeram, which is the home of Edom, Edom, I can't, yeah, my brain's gone, uh, which we just talked about, to the tent he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. So here, really clear, explicitly, two tents. But the bronze altar made by Baziel, son of Uri, and son of Hur, which are mentioned in Exodus as being the people that God had set up to um, and ordained to design the things within the tent of the tabernacle. Um, with those things that they had made were there in Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. There in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and he sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on it. What's clear as you read about these various accounts of the two tents is that you had one tent which was the tent of the word, uh, which was, or the, sorry, I'll say the tent of the law, so not the tent of the word, and that was the one which you can give you, and that was a mosaic tent, and that was the tent where, which really identified with Moses and everything that he brought. So there was all the stuff about burnt offerings and everything that happened there, um, and we know that David did go there. We know that, um, as you see, Solomon did, and and we know that, for instance, people like Paul and. And Jesus in their time, they still, even though uh, Paul was after Jesus, they still went to the tabernacle and things like that. And we understand that that was partly because God, they were honouring the things of God. The New Testament does talk about the fact that we should uh, not give the enemy a foothold to accuse us of things, if you like. So they uh, were, were making sure that they were demonstrating that they were doing the good things by God. They were honouring God. And what we understand that David did is he visited this tent again to honour God. Um, But that wasn't the tent that he brought near him. The tent that he built and brought near him was a tent of promise. So it was a tent with the presence of God. 
David's heart was not so much about this, this law thing. His, his, although he, he understood that and he honoured that, his heart was about the presence. It was more important that he would have the presence of God near him, that he could go and spend time with God and he could, as I said earlier, worship the socks off in this temple. And he would, because that's more important. The most important thing is relationship with God. Amen? Yeah? It's not about the rules and the, the law and stuff, but it's about the relationship with God. Now, you may say to me, yeah, but what, you know, Old Testament times, what, what, what value does the law have? And, and the New Testament talks a lot about this, but I'm going to put a timeline up, and I hope you can see this. I'll talk you through it. Oh, it's up. Good, thank you. Now, um, it was, I tried to get this looking a bit darker um, because it was originally in green and it wasn't going to show up. So hopefully you can see that. But this diagram shows a kind of a timeline. Okay, so over here we have the uh, creation of the earth and then over here you're kind of at the end of Revelation. So it's, you've got the, etern- the whole of, if you like, creation in there. And some, um, some people who um, put a little... Sun at the top, which is the eternal promises of God, kind of shining all over all of this. But this is, this is a picture of the covenants that God has given us. And the first, the main one that's overarching, which is the everlasting covenant, is really the covenant which is uh, articulated through God when He talks about talks to the serpent. He says, um, you know, uh, so a seed will come from man that will um, will crush your head, and is also articulated to Abraham and to David about descendants that there will be a descendant which will bless the nations and to David that they will be a king on the throne. That, that's, you know, the promises of a, a saviour and a messiah and the interactions of God, that is something that encompasses all of this. And you can find it right from the very beginning in, in Genesis 1, indications of these kind of things as we go along. Um, and then the fall happens, which is this point here. And then we kind of think immediately, well, okay, um, we're into territory where... Uh, Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now we're into, you know, because in Genesis, they, they, we're not told they are denied access to that now. We're told they're denied access to the tree of life, the two trees. Um, uh, and so we think, right, this is all about law now until Jesus comes along on the cross and reestablishes it. But actually, throughout the, even in those early conversations um, and what's laid down in the Mosaic law, there is indications which God puts in quite explicitly that some things are dependent on them obeying the law, but other things, such as his continual grace towards people and, and his undying love, is, is not conditional. And so there is this, this covenant of grace that actually um, lasts throughout the whole period. Now, that's why sometimes you'll hear me say the New Tuck Covenant is the oldest covenant of all, because when we get to the, this covenant after the cross... Well, what we're actually seeing is a fulfillment of that. So Jesus ushers in a completeness of that, but he, it's kind of our, in our human way, it's the moment that God kind of demonstrates what his whole plan has been about. Because God, he's outside time. So he breaks this moment in time where they, Jesus dies and we have this covenant of grace. But it's actually been there all the time. Um, and although we think of the old covenant as being all about rules, actually it's not. There's a dotted line there between... Um, the Old Covenant, the Covenant of Grace, because um, if you read it in the right way, instead of reading, reading it as dogma, you could understand that it reflects the heart of God. So as well, it tells you uh, that you, everyone falls short of the glory of God if they try and live to it. So 
you need a saviour. How many people know they need a saviour? You know, every day I'm reminded I need a saviour because I cannot live up to that standard, so I need God. to. And also, um, you know, that whole thing I've just described to you about the tabernacle and the shape of the tabernacle, you've got all these symbols in them which are just symbols of what was to come. So, you know, the, the fact that you have a place that... Um, that there would come a time that we could have full access to God, that there have got things like, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the scapegoat, you know, and you've got the lamb that was slain, you know, all these things are, are, are forerunners. Everything, all the candles, everything in there, when you read everything about the design of the tabernacle, it has something to do with the gospel message and what we now understand in its fullness. Um, so... You kind of, we kind of get into this thing about Old Testament as being all about law, but there are those people in the Old Testament, and David appears to be one of them, who understood that actually there was a covenant of grace which was more important, and, and he could live by that covenant, even though God had put in the Mosaic covenant. Now, you can read that if you don't believe me. You can go to Hebrews, and you can go to Hebrews 11, and you can read all about these people who, by faith, lived and God allowed them to do all these things that under the law they couldn't do. I mean, we all know the phrase, I think, that, that, that Abraham uh, had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Even that, if he was under the law, okay, it's pre-Mosaic, but still he had, as we understand it, his own ordinances. Um, under law, that, you can't have something credited to you as righteousness. But under grace, you can. And God's grace has always been there for us and God will always respond to faith, and he will always respond to people who want him and life with him more than following the rules. So, uh, I'll read some of Hebrews 11 to you. Um, so we've got this whole list of people, um, uh, you know, going from uh, Adam to Abraham, and Dan includes David and the like. And it, and it says in 1316 about these people, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. So they understood that God was going to do something that would bring them salvation. That they weren't tied down by the law, which told them that they couldn't reach the amazing God that they knew. They couldn't reach that holiness, but that God had promised them something um, and that, of course, we now know it's Jesus. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they would have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So there's a, very, there's a message in the middle of all these people that they were looking forward to something they were living and understood that they were living under a covenant of grace as much as they were living under a covenant of law, if not more so that they were living under a covenant of grace. So, um, so we have this tent, you've got a little picture out there. Um, who knows what it looked like, but um, that's probably one of the best guesses given the size it needed to be. Um, and we have this direct access now. This is all, all very nice, kind of theology, kind of theory or whatever we want to call it how is that relevant to us and you might kind of think well that's all very interesting if it wasn't for two really important prophecies 
that were spoken, one by the prophet Isaiah and one by the prophet Amos. So I'll read you, read you the ones from Isaiah first. So Isaiah, um, it's very small on there, Isaiah 16 verse 5. Yes, there's six. Um, the throne will be established in fullness and a judge will sit on it in trustworthiness in the tent of David. So we're talking about establishing a king. Okay, Isaiah has already called, uh, said there will be a king of righteousness who will be sitting on a throne. So here we have the king, Jesus, will be established in faithfulness and will sit on, uh, on the throne in trustworthiness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And then Amos says this, uh, chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. So remember, this is looking forward uh, which has fallen down and repair its damages, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So there's clearly this forward look to this re-establishment of this tent, which represents a tent of promise, a tent of access, something which allows us to have, be in 24-7 worship, allows us to have direct access to God and allows us to... Um, just enjoy his presence. And what's interesting, if, you, if, if you're not convinced at this stage, go to James, sorry, go to Acts 15, and you look at the words of James, and he quotes this. And what, what that is in response to is seeing lots of Gentiles being saved and filled with the Spirit. And James, who is the brother of uh, Jesus and now the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he says, he says this that we've been, we've been reading about in Isaiah and in Amos, that's come to pass now. This is what they were talking about. We now are living in a, a, a tent where we have direct access to God. This is the church. And what David's tent was, was a forerunner to the church. Uh, and uh, what I love about this is we're talk, you know, that David... Not only knew the heart of God, but he wanted to worship the socks off this thing. So church is about worship. It's about, um, it, it's about presence. And that's, that's great, isn't it? How good is that? So let's have a look at what, what some of the things that David's tent um, reflects to the church. First of all, we've talked about that we're under a... Under, we have a tent of promise, not a tent of law. So we are under grace, not law. Um, how easy it is for us to try and put rules around things, isn't it? So often we will, um, and I've t I know I, this is something which is a, a particular soapbox issue of mine, that we, the, the Bible is quite clear that we are released from the legalistic side of, of the scripture. The law is there purely to show us how God wants us to live, but he, he now writes it on our hearts so that we can respond and honour him by understanding what's on his heart. It's not about following rules anymore. It's about enjoying the fullness of life that is given through the Spirit of God. And the, the law then becomes something that it tells us, A, we need a saviour, and B, the heart of God for us to live, uh, live by. But it's not something that we, we get tied down into the rules. Um, so, uh, it's a covenant of grace, not of law. Um, we, the, other, the next thing that David's tent tells us is that we have Jesus and we have direct access to Jesus. So, we've already said that the presence of God was there in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the, 
the, so we understand, you know, Jesus is God. So we have this great king that it was talked about in Isaiah 11, and then he talks about in Isaiah 16, sitting on the throne, that's Jesus. So we have direct access to Jesus. We have Jesus with us, okay? That's why David was so excited about this, because he had the presence of God with him in Jerusalem. We have the presence of Jesus with us in church. Amen? Amen. Give me a bit more feedback, guys. <laughs> this is, I think this is exciting stuff. Do you agree? Oh, uh, good. Say <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, so we've got the grace not law, we've got the presence of Jesus and direct access to Jesus. Um, Jesus builds the church. Um, you'll, you, when I, where I just uh, read to you from Amos, it says, um, if you remember, it says, I will, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So there again, we have clarity that it's God that's doing the building here. We are working with him. Paul talks about us being, um, being co-workers with God, but God is the one who builds his church. Fourth thing, sacrifices. Um, we, have, uh, in, we have these two tents, uh, which we've been talking about. The tent in Gibeah is where we had sacrifices of atonement, uh, but we don't have sacrifices of atonement. In David's tent, we have sacrifices of worship and sacrifices of praise. We no longer need to have sacrifices of atonement in the church, we can, but our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of worship. When we come here and we sacrifice our time, or, or at home, or, or go to connect groups or whatever, and we give glory to God, we are sacrificing our time for the sake of just, just honouring God. Worship is a sacrifice, and our lives should be a living sacrifice to God. We have uh, the word of God. So David's tent was a place they could come to the word. What we know from 1 Kings 8 to 9 is that there was only one thing left at that time in the ark of God, and it explicitly says it was the, the uh, word of God that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So the only thing that then is in there with the presence of God is the word of God. So we have the presence of God, and of course we know that John talks about Jesus being also the word of God. So church is a place where we can come to the word, and we can study the word. Amen? Come on, come on. Um, 1 Chronicles 17, 16, uh, it talks to us about it, it being a place that we can come to pray, that church is a place we can come to pray. It says that David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed. I love that. He went in and sat before the Lord. There's something kind of peaceful about that, you know. You're kind of going in and just spending time with God. Um, I remember when I was in Southampton, the, uh, the church I was in there had this uh, very big auditorium. I know some of you have been. I think, Andrew, you went to seen the church in Southampton. Um, and I used to go in there when nobody was in there and just sit and enjoy the presence of God. Um, sometimes it's, you know, you can do it anywhere. I mean, we have, um, in our old house, we had a prayer closet. Now, Teresa has a particular seat she goes to, which is her quiet seat where she goes to pray. Um, but it's just lovely spending time with God and spending, uh, uh, having somewhere to go and pray. And church is one of those places that we can come and we can enjoy the presence of God and we can pray. We've been doing a lot of praying this morning and that's good, yeah? Praying does the business. 
And, um, and it is a place of prayer. And David's tent was a place of prayer. And finally, uh, David's tent, we read, was a tent for all nations. In that Amos um, uh, prophecy, it talked about the fact that he was raising up this tent. And then he says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And that's what the, um, the guys in Acts, um, James, took hold of and said, oh, we're seeing all this stuff happening in the Gentile. And that's why this prophecy is coming to pass. And we're seeing it in the church today. So 1 Chronicles 16, I'll just read you this. It isn't up on the, on the screens, but I want to I read you this. Because once David has established his tent and got all these worshippers, he sings a song. And the song's quite long, uh, but I'm only going to take a little bit from it. Because he's obviously, this is him declaring it to the people who are listening and the other people who are worshipping. Um, about the tent he's just built. And he says this, O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Tell all the nations, the Lord reigns. I love the fact that he says there, tell the nations to come and bring their offerings and come into his presence at this tent. The church is a tent or a home for all nations. It's something which we are called to reach out uh, as those who are already in the tent, to tell people about the goodness of God, to tell people about there is a place they can come and meet with him and they too can worship him and they too can honour him and it's here in the presence of God, in the church. That's what church is about. Amen? This is church. It's us. I think there's a few people's backs that you, you can recognise, but that's us. Church is also connect groups. Church is where two or three of us are gathered. We know the thing that church is the people of God. And all those things that I've just said, the grace, the presence of Jesus the building up of the church, the, the sacrifices of worship, the coming to the word, coming to pray, and access to people of all nations, that is a description of anything that happens where we as church meet together, where two or three or more are gathered. That's what church is.